Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Monday, May the 9th. we got a lot on the show today, including a conversation with a principal who has a teacher handling his chemistry class who isn't a teacher. He'll explain more about that and why, indeed, that's the case. Dr. Zane Chagla, as well, is against the concept of forcing kids to get vaccinated to attend school. I am as well. Many others are. (laughs) Some are not. And the Ontario Liberal Party is betting that you are for it. So that's coming up on Toronto Today, which starts now. You ever see the movie Stand and Deliver? Good movie. Late 80s. Edward James Olmos. I knew him from Miami Vice, but it's a great movie about a a gentleman, a high school math teacher that steps into a classroom, rough school in uh, California. And uh, and the film is, I remember watching it and uh, and thinking this movie is remarkable. Edward James Olmos, remarkable actor. He got a. Uh, an Academy Award nomination for it. I started thinking about it reading this story in the Toronto Star. Um, and uh, this teacher has stepped in to West Hill Collegiate Institute for three months. A teacher went on leave and he's come in and he's taught. He's from Sri Lanka, now a permanent resident of Canada, but he's attempting to complete his Bachelor of Education at uh, at Ontario Tech and there's been a struggle to get this done. Um, it's He was rejected in April of this year. The Toronto Star looked at it and said, you don't have the requirements because you don't have a degree from the right post-secondary institution. And uh, he's done this amazing job at uh, West Hill Collegiate. His name is Thiru, Thiru, uh, Thiru Kumaran. Kumaran and uh, it's he's been teaching chemistry there. And the kids love him. Um, the journalist who did the story for the Star asked all the uh, all the students about him, and we're pleased to be joined right now by his principal, uh, the principal of West Hill Collegiate Institute, is Trevor Bullen. Trevor, thanks very much for making the time uh, to tell more of this story about uh, Theru. It's it's a rather remarkable tale, isn't it? How did you find this person to step in and do such an amazing job? Good morning, and thank you for having me on to tell Theru's story. Uh, Thero came to our attention through, he was actually a student teacher of one of the uh, chemistry teachers in our school who described him as the best student teacher she has ever had and came highly recommended. So as soon as, as, soon as uh, uh, I heard that, I reached out to say, I know you've uh, gone through teacher's college and you're waiting through your OCT. I can help expedite that process. Let's get you in the classroom as soon as possible and reached out. And he, of course, uh, quickly agreed and, and came by the school hoping that this would be a quick turnaround. He'd get his teaching certificate and we could hire him to teach the class for the rest of the term if need be. So this just seems like a bureaucratic mess to some extent. And when I mentioned I was going to have uh, have you on to talk about theory, people said, ah, the, you know, the OCT, it's uh, it's just stuck. There's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape. <sighs> Do teachers feel that way uh, about this process? This just doesn't seem right that he's not he's not a proper teacher at this point in time after all this. Well, it, it's not like he just finished teacher's college. He's waited 16 mm-hmm. months to hear back from from the OCT and I you know just like uh, schools I do understand that there's uh there is difficulty in having staff and, and and getting the necessary people to process this but it's taken it's not just about the length of time it's the concern about not recognizing his degree 
He was uh, accepted into uh, graduate work at Sydney University with his degree. He was accepted into Ontario Tech U to do his teacher's college on the strength of his degree. The Royal uh, Society of Chemistry, Cambridge, England, has evaluated and recognized his degree. Yet, the and while he waited for his degree, enrolled in York University to do master's work, they accepted his degree. Yet, the the OCT says he's not qualified to teach a grade nine class with his degree. Trevor Bullen is our guest, uh, who is the principal of uh, of this particular teacher and the principal of West Hill Collegiate joining us on Toronto today. I, I'd make the case also, uh, not being much of a science buff myself, and uh, I have a degree in political science, but not science. Um, I, it's one of the it's probably one of the hardest courses to step into uh, in high school. One of the hardest, uh, um, you know, uh, elements of of tea. I could step in and and moonlight maybe as an English teacher, maybe as a history teacher, maybe geography, phys ed. This seems like an incredibly difficult um, concept, chemistry, to just walk in and act like you know what's going on. So I know you've had you've had teachers subbing in and pinch hitting in other classrooms because of the times we live in right now. Chemistry would strike me as being one of the hardest things to do that for. So Greg, I, I will take you in my classroom right now. We are desperate. For <laughs> Not for chemistry, you won't, or, or physics or biology. Believe well, me. That, that's the issue is is unqualified teachers are sitting in the class giving handouts and giving videos to kids because there is such a shortage in this discipline. Science is is especially an issue in schools and to have someone this qualified and able to teach not being able to really and the key is he's not getting paid for the work he's doing yeah. and he's doing it out of the goodness of his heart because he cares about the students and their ability to succeed and he knows that these are senior chemistry classes and if these kids aren't prepared to move on and go to go to the next level with the knowledge they need in those courses, then they're not they're not going to be successful. And he really cares about that and wants to make sure that he's made a commitment and he's following through on it. And, you know, he's just an incredible individual who who knows how to not just knows the knowledge, but builds personal relationships and knows how to teach kids to help them understand. I mean, you're his principal. Are you hopeful he's in the school next year earning a proper salary and teaching chemistry at West Hill Collegiate? Is that what you want? I, I'm hopeful that happens in the next couple of weeks, but, you know, absolutely. I mean, I would hire him second. And as soon as he gets his OCT, as soon as he gets it, he will have a job. I thought it was a good week. For the Del Duca Liberals. And then I thought that ended on Saturday morning. Stephen Del Duca goes before a lectern, goes before cameras, goes before audio recording devices, ARDs, and says, I will, if elected premier, mandate that education workers and kids are required to get vaccinated to attend school. And we're going to do that because the science is settled on this. We know that vaccines help our kids. He says not enough kids have gotten the vaccine already. In the youngest category, the, the kids who are ages 5 to 11 in this province, that as we stand here today, 
only about 40% of those eligible kids have received both doses of their vaccine. So that jumps off the page at me right away. I know that he wants to get the numbers up. I know he thinks, and this is not something that I, I'm not, this isn't the uh, hill I'm going to die on in arguing with Stephen Del Duca about this. But as of this morning, 60% of your kids wouldn't be allowed to come to school. So you've had time to decide. You've had real-world data, real-world efficacy give you some guidance as to what you want to do with vaccines. We're also using, I should point out, and this is very fair to point out, a vaccine that's a little bit older than uh, was made for Omicron. It wasn't made for Omicron. You can make the case that we're vaccinating kids with a vaccine that for a disease that really isn't prominent anymore. Okay, um, I want to play the clip that Stephen Del Duca was on with me in January, and I said, here's my scenario, Stephen, because he was talking about mandating vaccines for kids. And I said, I've got two teenage boys. They're very healthy. At that point, one of them hadn't had Omicron, and, and he has since. My other one did not. There's a lot of randomness with this virus. I think we'd concur on that. And uh, we talked about uh, elements of concern that I would have about a third shot so quickly for two very healthy teenage kids. Here's that conversation. But what's the, I mean, out of curiosity, what's the downside to your boys getting their third shot? What I see is Pfizer's own analysis that shows boosters would prevent a potential hospitalization for them at the same pace that potential uh, myocarditis would be a problem. It's not, it's not a zero risk game uh, for a third shot with men under 40 and certainly teenage boys. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I look. It's. I understand where you're coming from. I think. I think the best bet for us is to make sure that we are <clears throat> we are encouraging as strongly as we possibly can everybody across the board who is eligible to step up and get the boosters. The boosters are there. They are available. They are there. They are available, but they're also a choice at a certain point in time. Now, listen. I'm no conspiracy theorist. I'm no tinfoil hat wearing dude. You know that. And the myocarditis risk remains really rare, really rare after a third vaccine dose. You know what else is really rare? Like really, really rare is a bad COVID outcome after my kids have had two doses. That's really, really rare. And you've got to weigh those kind of decisions. And university students have had to weigh those decisions. And people recovering from Omicron have had to weigh those decisions. When's the next time? There's plenty of people asking their doctors, and that's the right thing to do, is ask your doctor whether you can see him or her, or you got to still teleconference, which, again, the lunacy I talked about on Friday's show. But there is that, there is that conversation to be had. And mandating vaccines is only going to divide. It's only going to confuse. And I think it's a big, big risk. Um, Stephen Del Duca says he's doing this, said this over the weekend on Saturday, because too few kids have had this particular vaccine. In the youngest category, the, the kids who are ages 5 to 11 in this province, that as we stand here today, only about 40% of those eligible kids have received both doses of their vaccine. Here's how I know this is problematic. Here's how I know. I follow some of the liberal MPPs on Twitter. I see some of the new liberal candidates on Twitter. None of them, none of them have retweeted this announcement on Saturday. They're happy to do it for the bucket, bucket ride transit. Happy to talk about grade 13. Happy to talk about continuing to do more to help the environment or, uh, or, or to buy out long-term care at private, private long-term care homes by 2028. All of those things they're happy to talk about. 
you find me a prospective liberal MP because I'm telling you a few of them privately, they're aghast at this policy. They sign up. They know people are going to go through their dirty laundry, their garbage. They're going to sign up to become a politician in the midst of a pandemic. The pay is okay, but it ain't awesome. Okay. Many captains of private industry are happy to go back to private industry. Rod Phillips is going to make a higher salary next year doing whatever he's doing than whatever he was making as MPP or a finance minister or minister of long-term care. He is. And they are so despondent that this is the direction that the Ontario Liberals are taking. I'm telling you, they are not for this policy. There's division already in the Ontario Liberals about this policy. I know it. I know it for a fact. Many prominent liberal MPPs or candidates didn't touch this with a 10-foot pole. They didn't endorse this. They didn't comment on it. They didn't retweet it. They did it earlier in the week about transit, long-term care, even grade 13. This looks like political suicide to me. Dr. Zane Chagla joins us right now on uh, on the show. You and I were talking about over the weekend and beyond the politics of this, this just this just does not feel like a policy, Dr. Chagla, that is that is meeting people where they are at. A hundred percent. And and look, I a hundred percent agree that five to eleven year olds, you know, there there's good reason to consider vaccination in that age group. And and patient, parents should make that decision, but they should make that decision with their providers from a place of trust, from a place of positive reinforcement, people getting the vaccine because they think that it's important for their children to get it. When you start putting mandates down, and and yes, you may improve uptake by a few percent. You know, you have to consider what are the consequences of this mandate? And, you know, uh, in this case, you may have parents that may not engage in education, that that may feel that the medical system is against them, that the school system is against them. Yes, there are exemptions for mandatory vaccines and parents can access them. But again, every time you start putting people down this road, you lose a little bit of trust, a little bit of confidence. And again, if something else comes up, if there's a better vaccine that comes down, if there's something that we need the population to actually, you know, buy into to reduce the risk even further and 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 get things down, you know, you lose public trust every time you start pushing them. And I will tell you that 35%, you know, is a very, very heterogeneous figure. It is spread across the city of Toronto in many different ways. The vaccine rate for 5 to 11-year-olds in Rosedale is 70% who have gotten two doses. The vaccine rate at Thorncliffe Park and Jane and Finch is less than 20%. There is a 50% difference between those eight those areas. And so what's going to happen when those parents get a letter home from school saying, your child can't go to school you know, if you can't get vaccinated. Well, in Thorncliffe Park, that's 80% of parents of five to 11 year olds that will get a note home from school in that context. You know, again, it would be a whole lot better to say, let's put money into studying why people aren't taking the vaccines. Let's, you know, fund and, and, and support local community organizations in vaccinations. Let's do the work to make sure that people understand the safety and efficacy of these vaccines rather than forcing 80% of parents in a school district to essentially say, take the vaccine or don't go to school. Dr. Zane Chagla is our guest. You lay out those numbers. And the first thing that pops into my head is 
it's a discriminatory policy on a bunch of different fronts. We're already seeing with remote learning that, you know, we tried to close. We, we, we had decades of work to try and close achievement gaps in terms of uh, race in, in schools, in terms of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and closing those closing those barriers down and, and making things more equitable. If you want to go to college, go to university. Um, this this doesn't seem, seem to serve that purpose. If anything, it does the opposite. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It may favor certain individuals. And I think, unfortunately, our mentality of people that have not taken the vaccine has been shifted by the events in Ottawa and others. But the reality of the situation is, you know, Thorncliffe Park, I'll use as a great example, you know, they had massive lineups when the vaccine was first coming to the market for adults, Mm -hmm. because those people understood, you know, that that community was devastated by COVID-19. That community understood you know, those adults needed their vaccine to protect them and to protect others in their circles in a pre-Omicron world. So it isn't that 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 community doesn't want to be vaccinated. They were one of the most aggressively vaccinated communities in Toronto. But when you see their kids are at 18%, and even I don't have the answer to why that is. Is it because those kids have had COVID and the parents are a bit hesitant to vaccinate them? Is it because they have a little bit more distrust in this vaccine because they're not totally sure whether or not things are, are reasonable? Is it because healthcare resources to counsel that vaccine are really minimal in those communities? And, you know, again, before you start talking about a mandate, Maybe we should be doing a stakeholder analysis. Maybe we should be getting representation from those regions to understand what the barriers are, not just necessarily physical barriers, but, you know, other barriers to access. And again, you know, there are so many different steps that need to go forward before we pull, you know, a mandate and, you know, cause restrictions before resources. Dr. Zane Chagel is our guest infectious disease specialist. And yeah, I, I just don't see this is not as simplistic as last year at this time where it's like, are you for the vaccine or against the vaccine? I lay out my circumstance, 14 year old kid, two shots coming off Omicron. I don't know whether Stephen Del Duca, a Stephen Del Duca government will say, Brady, your kid needs a third shot. Like, like, are we are we utilizing our knowledge of natural or acquired immunity in this process? And this is why a lot of countries have just scrapped it, period. Omicron changed the game on so many levels. Mm-hmm. Some of the negative, le- some of the negative things that happened with how widespread it was, some of the more positive things that it wasn't as harsh a virus as Delta or the original strain of Omicron. Um, so it's uh, I have a lot of questions as a parent that is absolutely pro vaccine. And uh, and I don't know that I'm getting any answers right now. And, and this will lead to people maybe maybe deciding not to vote for something that is so up in the air. Yeah, and agree. Like, you know, there is so much in it. And to the politicians out there, there is there are great policies to be made right now about studying vaccine hesitancy, about studying mm-hmm. why people aren't getting vaccinated and studying what supports are needed there. I would vote for a politician that would you know, say that front and center in their platform. I'm not partisan, you know, that mm-hmm. that will really push that to because vaccines are going to be a part of the next few years. And we have to be very careful of how we actually motivate them. They should not be a political decision. You know, nasty again, you know, with that guidance for five to 11 year olds said we should support parents for their decision to vaccinate or not vaccinate their children. They should not face stigma or any other consequence of society from not vaccinating or vaccinating their children. And so, you know, leave the decision making about mandatory vaccination to public health leaders, not to a politician as part of a platform. But politicians can make an absolute difference to say, what can we do 
to make sure that vaccine efficacy, that misinformation, that all of those things are actually supported in communities. And and again, you know, this is what we're we're not getting here. We're just getting a here's a policy. You know, you you guys will have to deal with it in, in the context. And ask you something that I think a lot of people are, are talking about in, in their social circles, based on the fact we've got a lot of we got a lot of RSV in our environment right now. Mm. Um, I went uh, I went I went to my first concert in like three years. It felt like uh, Tuesday <laughs> night. Uh, stupidly sang along with the songs because I was having a good time. I, I ended up with a sore throat a day and a half later. That sore throat cleared. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's what that feels like. But the fact we have had. We have not had a bad flu season. Mm. We're starting to pay a price. Are we starting to pay a price right now for the fact that none of us have gotten sick for 26, 27 months? And when you get sick, you're going to notice it a little bit more than the five or six times we used to get sick every year. And we just shrugged our shoulders and thought, well, this is life. Yeah, I mean, look, we've done something very different in terms of the fundamental cycles of uh, infectious disease. We've seen, you know, diseases start their flu season. Uh, in Denmark, for example, in March, where usually the flu season trails down in that sense. Um, we're seeing RSV, adenovirus, other respiratory virus, Norwalk, GI viruses that are now circulating because we're coming back together. And, and again, these are you know naive populations that haven't dealt with it in the context. And most people will do okay. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, mm. I mean, these are these are these are going to have atypical seasons for a year or two just because of the way we've traveled, the way we congregate has changed for the last year or two. Um, and so people do need to be aware, you know, there's lots of these stories of people have four or five negative rapid tests to COVID and have symptoms. And unfortunately, there are going to be other viruses now that, that cause people to have a sore throat and a cough that aren't COVID. Uh, and it's it's going to make the 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 water even a bit more confusing I, in that context. I only got a minute, but I'm seeing this described by many people as immunity debt. Does that phrase make sense that it's it's a lack of exposure to regular bacteria and viruses? Parents often debate best thing for your kid is to get him playing with other kids early on. This is pre-COVID. Play with other kids early on. If you if you stay at home, keep your kid, you know, on, in a bubble, in essence, those first couple of years, they don't have that exposure. So all these measures we've taken have changed things. But immunity debt seems to be a, 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 almost a phenomenon that's being caused by all these measures we took to combat COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, things like lower antibody levels in pregnant mothers and, and what happens to children in the first two years of life and that type of thing. It's, it's what we're going to have to study. Again, I think people will have generally pretty reasonable outcomes. And hopefully as things reset, you know, a season or two, this goes back to normal. But, you know, we do have to keep our ears up and we mm -hmm. have to understand. And, and for things like the flu shot, you know, it is probably the time next year to really have an aggressive campaign as that might be the first flu season for three or four years. We had a great weekend today. Brilliant. I don't see a, like a speck of rain until potentially Friday. Um, maybe even dare I say it with a, a, a three in front of the number in the next week and a half or so. Anthony Farnell is Global News chief meteorologist. This is what we waited for. We did all that. We did all the hard work. And uh, and here we are. We've got a great week ahead. Yeah, and you can just tell that that, that we have been deprived because uh, this weekend everybody seemed to be outside and, and the temperature still hasn't jumped. It was uh, 16 degrees yesterday in Toronto, which uh, is actually below seasonal, but the sun makes all the difference. That's with us all week. And uh, you mentioned it, the temperature climbing a couple of degrees every single day. And once uh, we get towards Friday and the weekend, I do expect to see a, a couple highs 30 in, in some parts of southern Ontario. 
So does that? So we may get thirty degree temperatures end of the week. Does that? Does that bring us humidity? Does that bring us thunderstorms? A little unsettled. Once you get on that hot end, uh, the weather can get unsettled. It can. I think initially uh, the humidity is going to be a little slow to to catch up, and that that's common at this time of year. There's there's a lot of dry brush, and and uh, the fields are are still going to become increasingly dry this week. It's one of the reasons why we're expecting the temperature to soar during the day, but still we're seeing single digits at night at least until Thursday or Friday. So uh, low humidity initially this weekend that starts to change. We have a southerly flow, so the humidex into the low 30s. Yes, I use. Humid X. It's been a while, uh, and then uh, and then uh, Sunday, I think, is when we we start to see that chance of, of thunderstorms, and then we may get a couple of days of of unsettled conditions at the tail end of of this heat. Only fair that I bring this up because we try to be objective. Last year, May was lousy. The start of May was really lousy, and from Anthony, from May sixth until may 11th we started getting warm around may 12th the temperature didn't rise above 11 degrees we had a five-day stretch it's it's 12 right now so i mean you know take we got to take good things when they arrive on our doorstep here it is yeah and it's the the amount of days that i mean already i think we're at three or four where it hasn't rained and now we're going to add another five or six so it's it's that stretch of dry weather that is very uncommon at this time of year so i think we'll take all of that uh, and then the bonus is is just the the heat that uh, I know I'm I'm pretty excited about. I know there's some people with backyards that have pools that are like, okay, uh, I'm waiting for the queue. Is is this it? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. Even though uh, late May, we we always have some setbacks, and and we're gonna see uh, rain and cold return. But but by then, late May, you, you can get through a, a couple of days of that. So what's causing what's causing the warm and dry pattern? How long how long does this last? It sounds like it sounds like we got at least seven, eight days of it. Yeah, it looks like uh, at least until probably Monday or Tuesday and then it cools down. But uh, there are signs that maybe we we see a return to warmth just in time for the tail end of, of the long weekend, the May 2-4. So uh, we'll get to that. We have plenty of time. But uh, basically, it, it's it's just a reversal of this pattern where we had cool around the Great Lakes, warm uh, down towards the southwest of the U.S. Now we're seeing chilly, unsettled conditions in mm. western Canada. And it's our turn to, to just benefit from from this ridge that is quite amplified. It's going to be warm. You'll see highs on Thursday, Friday, up in Timmins and, and places like Moosonee in northern Ontario that that reach 28, 29, 30 degrees. So uh, it's it's got broad reaches and and the far north is, is going to warm up first. I got uh, I, I, I got to feel like, is this the new, I hate, I've grown at the phrase, the audience might as well, the new normal where we go from like three weeks ago, is it time to take the snow tires off to, is it time to open the pool? <laughs> yes. Like, like we're just, spring is almost like evaporating. We're, we're going from almost, feels like we're going from March to May and we just skip April almost. I know, and it really sucks for for my spring wardrobe that just doesn't uh, it doesn't get the play that uh, that it would in say uh, London, England, or Vancouver, where you can wear it all year round. But uh, yeah, I mean, it feels that way, and and I think there is some truth to that. Uh, we've we've definitely had winter lingering into April longer, and that was the case this year. Uh, and then th- these changes that that seem to occur all of a sudden. Uh, and it coincides this year with the leaves popping and it just all around is going to feel like summer. So I don't know. I, I have to do a bit more research about that. But but I think it's something that that maybe climate change has something to do with and or maybe it's just uh, the decade that we're in. 
Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Feel free to share with a friend. Let them know we're here and available for daily consumption Monday through Friday and, of course, weekends as well. You can hear us do a live show tomorrow of Toronto Today on the Radio Player Canada app or at 640toronto.com. Thanks again for listening.